following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Start this morning with uh, Luke chapter 1. Uh, and to get some background to, to really what's going on before the events of Luke chapter 1, uh, I titled this message, Breaking the Silence. Um, during the days of Zechariah, the, the priest and, and Joseph and Mary, it had been in Israel f- over 400 years since God had really spoken. 400 years since there had been you know, a bona fide legitimate prophet who had come and proclaimed a word from, from the Lord. 400 years since they had really seen God move or work in any degree or measure in Israel. So 400 years is a long time of waiting. To kind of put that in our, in our day and age, about 402 years ago from, from right now, rolling hot off the press, uh, the, the best-selling book of the day 402 years ago was what? Which Bible? The King James, 1611, right? 1611, hot off the press. People were flocking, and that was, you know, if you were going to Amazon, you were ordering your new King James Bible 402 years ago. Um, So obviously, King James was on the throne. Uh, It was a long time ago. Shortly, just really shortly, within 100 years from the time of Martin Luther and the Reformation. So imagine... You are living in Zechariah's day. You are in the, the, the days described in Luke chapter 1. It's been a long time since God has spoken, right? Since there has been a prophet uh, worth remembering. And uh, it would be very easy, you know, you can imagine putting yourself in their shoes. It's, it's easy to imagine, you know, when is God going to speak again? When is God going to come in? When is God going to move forward his saving plan. And honestly, we probably do have some sense of that, and we can identify a little bit. After all, we've been waiting now for almost 2,000 years for the second coming. And it's easy to think, yeah, you know, God, let's kind of move the program on a bit here, right? Well, that's kind of how it was in that day. And, uh, um, and so, so that's the setting or the scene that's behind what, what's going on here. Uh, with Zechariah. And uh, beyond that background and context, um, may I start by just helping us think a little bit about a question that hopefully Zechariah will help us answer this morning. Um, Why does God answer your prayers? First of all, has anybody had God answer your prayers? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, three of you. Four. Five. Okay, good. Um, why would God answer your prayers? Why would he do that? Right? Now, when we first come to Christ, I know when I was first a believer, that was easy to answer. And the answer went something like this. Uh, God answers my prayers because I'm the center of the universe. And God exists to make me happy. And, you know, when you first come to Christ and you... You don't really know a lot, and you know we're coming out of this fog of sinfulness and self-centeredness. We're still pretty self-centered, and we have this picture that, well, of course God would answer my prayers. That's, what, that's his job, right? That's what God does, is he lives to serve me. 
we grow a bit, we mature a bit, and we start to see that we actually aren't the center of the universe. Uh, mostly we get married, and our spouse points that out. Um, and uh, and we, we kind of realize that God must answer prayer for some other reason. So we grow into this knowledge or sense that God is a gracious and loving God who, who loves his children, and that, that it's his heart, it's his nature to be loving and good. And so... Uh, our, our, our view matures a bit and we realize we don't deserve it and uh, that we don't ask for it based on um, earning it or that, you know, well, God, you know, I've served you so well, so now you owe me one, right? We, we learn that that's not how it works. And we start to understand what grace is. And we uh, begin to pr- pray and ask that God would answer based on his mercy and grace. My, my own personal experience of this, though, is that as I grow in the knowledge of that, and I realize that I'm not the center of the universe. In fact, I'm a very, you know, way out there orbiting, far out there, minuscule nothing, really. And I start to see who God is in his character and his love, and that he is, um, he's the center. It's all, it's, you know, and, and that he is loving and he's good. Um, but that he really doesn't exist just to make us happy. The problem with that thinking is I start to really, honestly for me, doubt even more that God would ever answer prayer, right? I mean, why would he answer prayer for some minuscule nobody guy floating out in the cosmos? Um, uh, He loves me, but honestly, his love is not conditioned on his answer to my prayers. And so it's it's easy to start to see that prayer um, seems... Hard to know what to do with. You may have that experience. And we know we have needs and we know we're supposed to ask God about them, but we go and we ask. But it's kind of like, you know, God, I'm just one of millions. You know, if you get a minute, uh, you can help me out here a little. If not, I know you're busy. <laughs> so don't worry about it. Right? They may have that experience with their prayers. That's kind of how you pray. You know, not exactly blazing the throne with confidence, right? Well, I think there's an area where we need to grow and mature even more to understand prayer. And I hope that Zechariah will help us do that. So let's look at his story and let's begin by reading the first few verses in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. Um, the story starts out, and, and really it's, it's remarkable that, that this is where it starts. So 400 years of silence, and the first thing we were introduced to is this elderly couple who are really quite everyday, average, ordinary people. Uh, this old guy, Zechariah, his wife, Elizabeth, he's a priest. Um, and Luke is very careful to identify them as real people in real time and space. So he mentions that it's during the time when Herod was king of Judea. And that, that this priest was a member of the priestly order of, uh, of, of one of the orders of the priests. He's a real person, right? But he's a very ordinary person. He's not the high priest. He's not... One of the head priests, he's not a Sadducee, he's not in the ruling class. He is just a priest. Now, you might think, well, how many of them were priests? You know, that, that certainly, you know, singles him out as a very special group. Well, in, in this 
era, there were about 18,000 priests serving in the temple. Right? So he's one of 18,000. He's not, you know, the star of the show here. Right? Uh, and the way this would work in his day, the, the priestly duty, it says that he's uh, the order of Abijah. There were 24 orders of priests. Uh, and the way it would work, they were, the, the year, calendar year was divided up, and each um, year, these order of priests would serve for two separate weeks during the year. So twice a year they would go up, and they would serve and minister and perform the priestly duties for a week, seven days. Right? Now, take 18,000, divide it by 24 the math works out. There are about 750 priests in each order. So twice a year, he would go up with his other little tight-knit men's group of 750, right? Good buds who went up twice a, twice a year for men's group on a massive scale. And 750 of these guys would serve in the temple, right? You're getting the picture here that this guy is, is just one in a crowd, right? He's just this old guy who's been faithfully uh, serving and doing his duty, and uh, as they would go, you say, well, what do 750 guys do? Well, mostly what they would do is, would, would be to uh, mediate or minister the daily sacrifices. And, of course, there were prescribed sacrifices, morning and evening of certain offerings, and if there was a Sabbath, other offerings, new moon offerings. So they would, they would uh, administer those, those offerings and sacrifices. And then uh, for all the people, you know, hundreds and maybe thousands of people coming bringing uh, their own free will offerings, thank offerings, praise offerings, first fruits, all those kinds of things, they would handle those as well. So for these priests, they were quite busy, and they would spend most of their time in the courtyard right immediately in front of the main temple, okay, in the temple complex, but not in the holy place. And that, in that courtyard would set up the, the, the altars, and they would be, spend most of their day killing animals and burning them on... on, on they, were, they were barbecue specialists, right? That's what they did. Um, now, out of that, uh, there were also a few duties that required them entering actually into the temple. Uh, of course, they would not go into the Holy of Holies. That would be the function of the high priest one day per year. But daily, at least, uh, they would burn incense in the, the holy place before the curtain. So you got the temple. Uh, inside is the Ark of the Covenant and uh, the angels. And, uh, and then there's the curtain. Uh, before the curtain on, on one side, my left, uh, would be the table of bread, where there would be 12 loaves of bread and a glass of wine. Great picture of Jesus. On the other side, um, your, my right, your left, that side, uh, would be the candle stand, the, the, the menorah, the candlestick. Great picture of the light of God, the Holy Spirit. In between those two was the altar of incense. And they would go in... Uh, morning and evening, and they would offer incense. Uh, and it was a picture of prayer uh, before the triune God. So uh, 14 days, twice a day, you're talking, you know, 14 slots to do this, 750 guys. So how did this work? Well, they would draw a lot and pick their name out of a hat. And uh, if your name was drawn, you would get to go in and one time in your life, because there are so many priests, you got one shot at this. One shot. Go into the holy place where no one but the priest could go, and you would stand before the very presence of God. So picture this. The priest goes in, here's the curtain. You know on the other side is the manifest presence of the glory of God. Right? Now you know God dwells in heaven, but his place to be on earth is in the holy of holies. 
And to come before that curtain is to stand. Nothing between you and the presence of God, but this curtain. And you offer, burn up this incense. And the priest's main role was as a mediator. So he represents the people before God. And as he burns this incense, he would pray for the people. And of course, during this time, they were praying, God, it's been 400 years. Please send your salvation. Please may your salvation for Israel come. Would you restore Israel? Would you send your anointed one, your king, and restore Israel to its glory like it was in the days of David? And they would pray. And the priest would carry this burden of representing the people and lifting up these prayers. And the incense was a picture, a symbol of these prayers going up. So imagine the, the, the joy and thrill of doing this. It was a big deal. Uh, and it was indeed a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, so it says that, uh, it says that Zechariah was, was part of this priesthood. And he was faithfully doing his duty. He was a righteous and godly man who faithfully carried out his priestly service and duty. Um, I love this. Uh, you know, people give preachers a hard time that we only have to work one day a week. Great job. I'll trade you any day. Uh, I like their job even better. 14 days a year. I mean, what a deal. You know, two weeks. Most of us want two weeks off. They got two weeks to work, right? Pretty good gig. Uh, and a very special honor. And, and um, you know, they would go up and faithfully serve God. Well, um, Let's just imagine a little bit Zechariah and put ourselves a little bit in his shoes. Okay, so he would have started serving in his early 20s. Uh, twice a year he would go up to the temple. And, uh, you know, if, if I were him, I'm thinking every time I'm going up to Jerusalem to the temple to serve, I'm going to be thinking about my duties. But I'm going to be wondering, is this the time, is, is this the year that my name will be drawn and I will get to go into the temple? Right? How could you not think about that and imagine that and wonder, right, is this the time? Now, if, if that was you and you had that, that opportunity, and it's kind of like a once-in-a-lifetime shot at asking God for a special favor, right? I mean, once, one, one time in your life you stand in the presence of God and you're, you're going to represent the people, you're going to pray for Israel, it's your job. But at the end... Are you going to tag on a personal request? Well, absolutely, right? Well, what do you pray for? Standing before a holy God. Well, it tells us that they had been without children. Um, I can imagine that as he would go up, uh, um, you know, this would be on his heart and mind. And, uh, you know, the, the, the remarkable thing is we think about what this was, right? Imagine what this was like for Zechariah. Uh, fast forward to the end of the book, uh, the Gospels. You know, Jesus has saved us, and we have been made a nation of priests. Right? We we have access not not only into the holy place, but the curtain of the temple was torn in two and is gone, and we have access into the holy of holies, the very presence of God. Uh, do we get the privilege that we have through Christ? Right? We are priests. We, unlike Zechariah, this is not a once-in-a-lifetime shot for us. Daily, 
we are invited and commanded to come boldly before the throne of God to bring our petitions and our requests and our prayers. Right? Um, that's the blessing we live in through Christ. We can ask daily, uh, not from a distance, but face-to-face with God in his presence for his help. Well, what would, uh, what would Zechariah ask? You know, it says in verse 7, they had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both very old. Uh, I cannot imagine that this was not on his mind every time he went up to the temple, right? And I'm sure they had prayed. In fact, we know that they prayed, uh, had been praying for many years for a child. And so every year I can just picture Zechariah going up to the temple going, this year, it's going to happen. I'm, my name is going to be drawn. I'm going to go in. I'm going to pray for the nation. And I'm going to pray for a child. But year after year after year after year goes by. And now Zechariah is an old man. An old man. He is retirement age. Right? He's getting to the end. Right? And still, he's never had one chance to go into the temple and burn the incense. Um, Luke is very careful to tell us that both Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous. It's important because in, in their day, being childless could mean that there was some sin in your life that God was judging. But Luke is very clear that that's not the case with them. He is a priest with a problem, but the problem is not the result of his own sin. It was just biology, right? And in God's plan and God's purpose, he um, had caused them to live with great disappointment. So here's a guy who's faithfully served God his whole life, who's been faithful and diligent to carry out all of his duties as a priest and as an Israelite. He's been faithful to God, and yet he has lived with this huge disappointment. And Elizabeth has lived with this huge disappointment uh, all their days. Um, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like you were serving God, you're doing the right things, you're doing all the things that God requires of you, and yet God has left you with disappointment? Right? Maybe you, like, like this couple, have not been able to have children. Maybe it's other things. Right? And it's easy to think, why, does, why would God answer prayer for me? Or why hasn't God answered prayer for me? Or maybe you have prayed, and like Zechariah, you would say, well... God doesn't have to answer prayer for me, and uh, why would he anyway? Well, that's Zechariah. Um, so he gets to the end of his life, and, that, and now, you know, in this story, he is about to have this opportunity, right? Verse 8, one day when Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week, as was the custom of the priests, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. He finally wins the lottery, right? Uh, so Zechariah finally, as an old man, gets to go into the temple. And he goes in, and he's burning his incense, and he's pleading to God for the salvation of Israel. And, and this, this is purely my speculation and imagination. This is not in Scripture, Right? But when I put myself in the story and I put myself in Zechariah's shoes, I'm standing before the curtain. I'm praying for God. I'm praying for Israel, praying for God's salvation. And then I remember my one great personal prayer request. Do I ask it? Right? I'm now an old man. 
My wife is an old woman. Do I ask God, give me a child? And I can just see Zechariah standing before the curtain, confused and perplexed, and not sure what to do. Do I ask the question? Do I not ask the question? What, what a silly question. What an absurdity that I would even consider asking that question. Now, I don't know if this is the case, right? But I picture Zechariah wrestling through this very question, and poof, the angel shows up, right? Um, we know that he prayed, because the angel says, God has heard your prayer and is going to answer it. When did, two big questions that theologians wrestle with. Number one, what was he praying? And number two, when did he pray it? Uh, does the angel say, I, I heard your prayer for Israel, and I've come to answer it? Uh, or is he saying, I've heard your prayer for a child, and I've come to answer it? Okay. The angel's not real specific, actually. Um, was it a prayer you prayed a long time ago, or is it the prayer you're praying now? We don't know, right? We don't know. But the fact is, the angel does appear. And for the first time in 400 years, God bursts into the scene and he begins to speak. Right? And in Zechariah, like we would be, is absolutely terrified. Right? He is quaking at the fact that just if I, look, if I don't look off to the candlestick, I think there's an angel there and he's trying to talk to me. Right? I'm not looking over there. It's just the light from the candlestick playing tricks with my eyes, right? And the angel begins to speak and says, um, uh, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Again, it doesn't say what prayer. But he says, Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son, and you are to name him John. Um, the angel shows up and, and declares that God is answering. Whatever prayer it is, whenever it was he prayed it, God is answering and the reality is that whether it was that day or 15 years ago, uh, God knows his heart and God remembered. No matter how long ago it was that Zechariah, Zechariah gave up praying that prayer or not. God knows and God remembers. Right? And God works and God answers. And God is going to give them a child. Uh, and then the angel goes on to explain some things about this child. Um, in verse 14 he says, uh, you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And he will turn many Israelites to, their, to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. And he will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who rebel, who are rebellious, to accept the wisdom of the godly. Um, there's a lot about this child to know, and a lot that, uh, that is described about his life that uh, the angel tells Zechariah. And let me re run briefly down the list, okay? First of all, this child will be a prophet. Um, we sang a great song this morning uh, leading up, very appropriate, about the prophet coming, right? Uh, first time in 400 years. There's going to be a prophet. There's going to be a spokesperson. And notice the characteristics of this prophet. Um, he will be a great man in the eyes of God. Okay, so God is raising him up. Secondly, he will not drink alcohol. Uh, the significance of that is that 
this John will, will have a very unique role. He is going to be separated apart from the, the everyday people in a very unique way. Okay? This is not, by the way, for those of you who are you know, against alcohol, that all good spiritual people don't drink. It's not what he's saying here. But he's saying that John will be very much set apart from, from the crowd because the Israelites could drink. The priests could drink. He could not because he was set apart in a unique way. Thirdly, he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from before his birth. That's, that's different, okay? not common. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, when God called a prophet, the, the Holy Spirit would come on that prophet and he would speak great prophetic utterances. But here, he would be set apart even from before his birth in his mother's womb. He would be filled with the Holy Spirit and his ministry would be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, fourthly, he will be ministering in the spirit and power of Elijah. Okay, there's lots of prophets and there are lots of ranks of prophets. If you want to be a top-notch, grade-A, number one, chief prophet, you are like Elijah. Uh, he gets shot to the very top of the list. He will be like, ministering in the spirit, spirit and power, the likeness of Elijah. Right? He's going to be a major prophet, not a minor prophet. Uh, and what will be the focus of his ministry? What will he do? Well, his ministry will be to turn Israel back to God to prepare them for the coming of the Lord. Wow. Okay, so I don't know how much of this Zechariah actually got the first time. I'm thinking God sent a follow-up email because, I mean, like, if I'm Zechariah, I'm like, I'm just numb at all this. I'm just like, this is just, huh? What? Who? You know, a lot of information here. Okay. Um, John is uh, the first piece of God's great saving move in history, right? And this, this, this prophet will come with a very unique and special role to pave the way, uh, not for his own ministry or kingdom, but for one who is coming. The Lord is coming. And the role of John will be to prepare the way by turning Israel from their rebellion and their sin and their uh, moving away from God to turn them back to God. That will be his role. And because of that, Many people will rejoice at his birth. So this is not an event that's just about Zechariah and Elizabeth, but it is an event that will bring joy to many people, uh, not only in Israel, but around the world. This is a big deal. Uh, And after all those years, the silence is broken with uh, God promising to once again move and fulfill his promises to the patriarchs uh, for all time. Um, well, Zechariah responds to this. Okay, so he's finally, you know, his brain's clearing a little bit. He's getting over the initial shock. He's trying to soak all this in, right? And uh, he responds this way. Okay, and I don't know what you would say if an angel's talking to you in the temple. Uh, what would you say? But this is what John says. He says, well, Zechariah said to the angel, how can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. Like, the angel doesn't know this, you know. I mean, I just came from God's presence. Here, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I'm old. Have you noticed? <laughs> right? Um, think about this, okay? You know, you're in the temple. This, to me, this is just one of the funniest scenes in all of Scripture, okay? Once in a lifetime, you get to go into the temple before the very throne holy glory of God. You're in there praying and offering up incense as the high priest. An angel shows up after 400 years and starts talking to you and telling you you're going to have a child. And you answer by saying, 
Are you sure? <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm telling you, if an angel starts talking to you, I would believe, especially in the temple, I think I'd believe what he said. Right? I'm not going to ask questions. Right? Um, well, let's apply this in a couple ways. First of all, Zechariah was was just full of doubt. Right? He's full of doubt, and uh, it's a bit ironic, I think. Because he clearly has prayed for this. Now, we don't know, again, we don't know when, but he's prayed for this. And, and Elizabeth has prayed for this. This has been something that's been a focus of their life for a long, long time. Right? And, um, and God shows up and says, yeah, I'm going to do this. And his immediate response is, well, I don't, I don't believe it. Right? I don't believe it. Um, and, and the reality is that one, one of the reasons that for us prayer does not work and one of the reasons it almost didn't work for Zechariah, but it worked in spite of him. One of the reasons prayer oftentimes does not work for us is that we pray for things that are possible. Right? In other words, so Zechariah, for all those years, you know, when he was 25 and praying this, you know, it didn't take a miracle, right? Because people 25 have babies all the time. 30, 35, right? Um, it was one thing to pray for something that was possible. But now it seems impossible. It's something in this case that only God could do. There's no way this is going to happen unless God performs an incredible miracle. How much of our prayer is that way? One of the reasons I think prayer oftentimes doesn't work for us is that, like Zechariah, we love to pray for things that are possible. Pray for things that pretty much we could do without God's help. And we pray for things that, you know, God would take what we can do and just kind of nudge it a little bit, uh, bless it. But how often are we really trusting and praying for God to do what is absolutely impossible apart from his intervention? Um, you know, we, we limit ourselves. Zechariah had prayed this. All of a sudden now, though, it seemed like a silly prayer. And when he gets the answer... He doubts that it could be true. Okay? Um, we need to be praying for things that only God could do. Now, this creates other problems, however, because um, there's a lot of things I could pray for that I know only God could do, like win the lottery. And one of the reasons I know that uh, only God could do that is because I don't actually play the lottery. <laughs> so it really would be a miracle if I won. Okay? Um, but the question is, you know, God do that. You know, does God, it's, it's impossible. Just because it's impossible doesn't mean that God's going to do it. We could all think of lots of impossible things to pray for, but does that guarantee that just because it's hard, God's going to do it? Well, of course not, right? There's still that missing piece. There's still part of the puzzle that's missing. Um, so as I said at the beginning, we, we know that God is not going to answer the prayer because I'm the center of the universe and he lives to make me happy, right? We know that. Secondly, uh, we, we know that God is loving and good and he does want to bless his children. But uh, the, And this is closer to the truth, but there's still something missing. Because here's the deal. With Zechariah, if that was the reason, okay? God answers prayer because he's good and loving. That doesn't explain Zechariah and Elizabeth. Because they've suffered with huge disappointment their whole life. If God loved them, he wouldn't do that to them. If that was all it was about, right? If it was all it was about, God could have given him a child 30 years ago, 
right? And he did it. So there's got to be something more to it than just that God's good and nice. Something's missing. And it's that something missing that, that leaves Zechariah in a cloud of doubt and confusion. Well, here's the thing. What is this story really about? Is this story really about Zechariah and Elizabeth? Or is it really about something else? Is it really about John? Or is it really not even about John, but ultimately about Jesus? Right? What's the story really about? Well, Zechariah and Elizabeth are, are nobodies, right? They're nobodies who lived with a lot of pain and disappointment because they couldn't have children. But they are an insignificant piece of the whole scheme of things, right? What is this story really is about is about the gospel, right? This is uh, Luke's gospel about Jesus, not about Zechariah or John, right? And we know, of course, we know the rest of the story. We know that, yeah, this is just the, this is just the opening scene. Maybe even before the curtains lifted. This is like the prelude before the opening scene. That it's really about Jesus. And Zechariah and even John are those who are just preparing the way for God's coming salvation in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's interesting uh, what, the, what the angel responds to Zechariah. In verse 19 he says, The angel answered, I am Gabriel... I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Uh, it's literally the word that we get the word evangelism, euangelizo, evangelism, okay, the gospel. Right? He says, I, was, I stand in God's presence. How do I know this is going to happen? You know the curtain you're standing in front of? I live on the other side. You know, only not here in heaven. Okay, I, I hang out with God all the time, right? And he told me personally that he's going to do this. And not only that, but he sent me, old school email, to you to tell you what God's going to do. And certainly he will accomplish this. And he sent me to evangelize you, to tell you the good news. And there's a lot of other ways Luke could have said this, and he's very intentional about using that word gospel, good news. Because it is ultimately good news that goes way beyond John or Zechariah or Elizabeth. It's the gospel, it's the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the beginning of it. And I have come to pour out to you the good news. And here's, I think, one of the great points of this whole story. Um... The point of the story is that God is about to break into history and bring his salvation through Christ. But 90% of the content of the story is about this little old priest and his humble little wife, right? Um, and Luke and God and the Holy Spirit take time to spell out the painful, mundane details of this obscure couple right, who don't even know the part of the story that they are playing out, right? That they are part of this huge story of God's saving plan. And they get to be a piece of it, right? And so uh, it's a story within a story. But the, the big story is the one that counts. I've had some cool pictures of mosaics up because this is what it is. It's a mosaic, right? And... Zechariah and Elizabeth are one tiny little mosaic ceramic tile, right? Uh, 
I, I had the chance, we were in Rome a few years back, got to go to St. Peter's Basilica. I mean, some of you have been there. You go in, massive place. And the paintings in there are on a scale that's unbelievable. They're like 30, 40 feet high by 20 feet wide. Massive paintings that just decorate this place. And you, you go up and you look at these paintings and you realize that they're actually not paintings. They actually are mosaics. Very intricately, incredibly well done mosaics. And from a distance, you would never know that it's little pieces of tile. It looks like a painting. But uh, to, to make it last longer, they took the original paintings and they duplicated them painstakingly into these massive mosaics. Right? Well, the massive grand mosaic of God's plan through time and space is the, is the gospel. It's his unfolding of salvation. Right? Uh, but we get to be a piece of that. Right? Why did God answer Zechariah's prayer? Well, it's not because Zechariah was the, was the painting. Right? It's not just because God was good. It is ultimately because Zechariah was a part of a much bigger picture. He was a part of God's unfolding plan. And it's that unfolding purpose and plan of God that was intricately tied up with the answer to this prayer. Do you get the implications of that for our life? Do you get what that means for you and I? When you pray your little prayer because your car broke down or because you're short on money this month or because you tore your shoulder up and you're in a lot of pain, the, the, the little things in our life that are, are disappointments and frustrations and failures and difficulties. You know, God wants us to pray for those things, and especially the things that are quite impossible. Right? But what he's really interested in is how he can take your life and how he can answer the mundane, routine deals of your life in a way that paint the great picture of his unfolding salvation history. Right? Because the truth is that just like Zechariah and Elizabeth and, and uh, John, uh, we are moving forward the great salvation plan of God. Right? We have a piece in what God is doing through all time and space. And God holds up here in Luke this couple as a piece of that mosaic. Right? Uh, and their life, their life shines with the glory of God because it's part of this much bigger picture. That's why God answers your prayer. Because your life is not just about you, and it's not just about God's love. It's ultimately about God's incredible saving purpose in the world and the universe, in and through you. In and through you and I. He is at work in amazing ways in our life for his glory. Um, Last thing. Um... Uh, the, the, kind of the rest of the story goes like this. Um, so I'm Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It's He who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you don't believe it, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be, f- be fulfilled at the proper time. My words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time, in spite of your lack of faith. Meanwhile, the people were outside waiting for Zechariah to come, wondering why he was taking so long. When he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to them. Then they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. When Zechariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. 
And soon afterward, his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. Uh, She exclaimed, How kind the Lord is! He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. Um, The story ends on a couple really rather ironic notes. Um, Zechariah goes into the temple to speak to God, to speak to a God who has been silent for 400 years. God speaks, and Zechariah comes out silent. Right? Uh, the angel proclaims good news, and news is supposed to be proclaimed and announced. It's to be spread about. But this news is kept a secret because Zechariah is unable to deliver it to others. Right? Why? Because he doubted. Because right? he had no faith. Uh, from the very beginning of this gospel, Luke tells us in this story that the good news is coming. It is the news that's to be declared and proclaimed, but it must be received with faith. Right? All we have to do, our only part, is to believe what the messenger says and receive it and accept it. Uh, and here, uh, it's not just the good news about our salvation from sin. It's about the unfolding of God's saving work in every part of life. Right? God was doing a work, and he worked in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life, not just to save them from sin, which is a good thing, to bring forgiveness eternally, a good thing, but he gave them a child. Uh, He took away Elizabeth's pain and disappointment and shame. We need to believe that God is a God who wants to work out his salvation in our life, in, in everyday life, right? Not just in the big things of taking away our sin and giving us eternal life. He does that. But through the daily struggles, as we pray and seek his help, God wants to bring his salvation and help. Uh, in this story, as in often happens in the book of Luke, the ladies get it right. Okay? Uh, Zechariah gets a D minus, 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 maybe an F. I'm not sure. Right? He, he fails. He flunks out. Elizabeth gets it right. Uh, and that's often the case in Luke. Uh, she understands and she believes. And the evidence of her faith is what? Well, she gives praise to God. Right? She gives praise to God. She says, um, uh, how kind the Lord is. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. God is good. Right? The evidence of faith in our life will be a life of true praise and thanksgiving. If we are unthankful and we're bitter and complaining, uh, it's a sign that we're not exercising faith. Um. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.